0: Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning. It is uh, good to be with you on the Lord's Day with the Lord's people listening to the Lord's word, singing out his praises. I do hope that this morning blesses you in our time together. If I didn't already introduce myself, my name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen, and it's uh, just a joy to be with you. Um, And we have been, you have caught us as a church walking verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And we arrived this morning at Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Everything gets a little dark from this point on. we have, let me remind you of what we've talked about, what you've missed. So if you want to go back and listen, you can. We started this series by talking about who is God, God's nature, uh, what God is like. Then we talked about what God has created and God's ordering of things and how God ordered things and why God ordered things the way that God ordered things. Then we talked about mankind. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, then we talked about obligations that we have. We talked about being fruitful and multiplying. We talked about working. Um, God rests on the seventh day. And then we talked about how we were made to also rest and how we need rest and how to rest. And then last week, we talked about man and woman and the creation of Eve. And we talked about marriage and the beauty of marriage and what's hard about marriage. And and everything has been going quite well in the garden, um, filled with potential, and now we get to Genesis chapter 3, where everything turns. If you were with us last week, we ended Genesis 2, and you've got Adam and Eve, and you've got this kind of wedding ceremony at the end of Genesis 2. Eve is now his wife. Um, They are together going to sort of co-rule over God's creation, and just everything is well. And you kind of end last week, and it's it's just so beautiful. And then this morning, we get into what we Christians call the fall, the explanation for how everything has gone wrong and why everything in the world today is as messed up as it is. But before we dive into this text, I just want to remind you of the setting of the writing of this text. So imagine for just a moment that you were a slave in Egypt, and imagine that as you came out of Egypt, rescued by God into the wilderness, and as you've been wandering in the wilderness, and you've been looking towards that future promised day, so many people in the wilderness have died. And you have not yet got to the promised land. Israel has not gotten to the promised land. And, and they're looking around in the desert, and they just see they see suffering, I mean, they were slaves after all. They see, they see death. They've got grave sites. And, and they're, they're looking around and they're wondering this thing that I think we all kind of wonder at some point, which is like, what happened to us? Why is life so difficult? Why all of this chaos and death? Why slavery? Why have we been mistreated? Why, why is everything so hard? Why is the world that we live in so messed up? Why is this messed up world out there? Why do I I look at the world and I say about it, that's so messed up. And then I look inside with any kind of honesty and I see that the brokenness that exists in the world also exists in me. Why are we so miserable? Why are relationships so complicated? Why is life so hard? Why all the suffering? Why the disease? Why the pain? Why all this death? And God, through Moses, is helping Israel understand the origin of brokenness. That's what this text is about this morning. It helps Israel and us understand the origin of brokenness. But more than just that, it seeks to give them hope. And so, with that, I want you to hear these words as God articulating through Moses to Israel and to you and to me how we got here. How we got from the beauty and majesty of God in Genesis 1, the creation of God, the provision of God, the abundance of God, the potential of this garden, male and female, the harmony with God to the world we live in today. So if you have a Bible I'd invite you to open up in front of you to Genesis chapter 3, not too difficult to find. Start at the beginning and just turn a few pages, and you'll get to Genesis 3, and I'll read the whole text this morning, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. We'll talk about the fall this week, and then next week we'll talk about more of the consequences of the fall. So this is the fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. For God knows that when you... I'm sorry, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, That it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. These are the first 13 verses that mark the saddest chapter in all of the Bible. And this is our outline this morning. First, I want to talk about temptation, and then we'll talk about rebellion, and then I hope you'll see in the text confrontation. So temptation, rebellion, and then confrontation. We'll begin with temptation. When Genesis 3 opens, you get the introductory line of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty. When Hebrew writers add a a character description, it's important. And so it jumps right off of the page, this creature is crafty. There's an ominous tone that exists over the text. Whatever is about to happen with this crafty creature, we ought not take this, whatever this crafty creature does, we ought not receive it um, uh, 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 as trustworthy or as reliable. But Moses does want you to know that the serpent that is in the garden with Adam and with Eve is a creature that has been created by God. Right? That the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So, lest you come to the conclusion too quickly that there are two equal powers in the universe, God and the serpent, that is not true. Moses wants you to know. God wants you to know. It is not God and on equal footing is the serpent. Rather, it is God who reigns supreme over everything, and the serpent is merely seeking to upend what God has made good this serpent does something that is surprising. Surprising to Adam and Eve, surprising to us. Namely, the serpent speaks. Not necessarily because there was a time when snakes could talk, but rather, this serpent is being used by some other sort of being. And what does this serpent say? The serpent says to the woman, did God actually say. If you're in Genesis 3, I just want you to see something. The Genesis 3 verse 1 says that the Lord God had made. The Lord is the word Yahweh. Anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's, the, that's God's proper named Yahweh, and then the word God is the word Elohim. So you see in Genesis 3 that that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. But here comes the serpent, and the serpent does not use God's name Yahweh. The, The serpent does not use God's name. The serpent is more removed, sort of distant, and just uses Elohim. Did Elohim actually say, The first move in temptation, the first move in the destruction of humanity, is to get Adam and Eve, or Eve in this particular case, to question if God's word is trustworthy. That's the first thing, right out of the gate. Did God actually say? We know by reading the whole scriptures, that the devil is the father of lies. Jesus says that in John chapter 8. But the serpent here is not Satan in the sense that um, it's not just that the serpent is Satan, but rather that Satan, the devil, the father of lies, is using the serpent to undo and undermine what God has made and created good. In the book of Revelation, John the seer talks about the great dragon being thrown down, the ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And I want you to see with great clarity what it is that the serpent, that Satan does to Eve. It's so important. Look at, look at this. These are the two comparisons. They're so key. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is the command that God gives to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, What did God say? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I want to I emphasize that one section. You need to see it. God's provision, God's abundance, God's blessing. God's generosity? What does he say to Adam and Eve? You can eat of every tree. I got a ton of trees with a ton of fruit. You can eat of every tree, but this one. What happens at the end of uh, verse one of chapter three as The snake, as the serpent repeats back God's words, what does the serpent do? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see this? The the command for God is about blessing. It's about abundance. It's about provision. You may eat of every, God says. And what does the serpent do? The serpent takes God's abundance, God's provision, and turns it into restriction. You shall not eat of any. No, no, God said I can eat of every. Did he say you can't eat of any? Every or any. Every or any. The serpent ignores the abundance of God, the last thing the devil wants you thinking about is the abundance of God, and rather seeks to make God sound unreasonable. All of these trees are good versus you can't eat from any of them. When we talk about temptation, I want you to understand that the devil always makes God's generosity look ungenerous. Please do not miss this. God always seeks to change your way of thinking from seeing God's generosity to making that generosity look ungenerous. The serpent wants Eve to think the forbidden tree is better. And we have a version of that We don't say the forbidden tree is better. We say the grass is greener. That's what we say, right? The grass is greener. We live our lives with a perpetual sense that things would be better or different if only, if only we were given that opportunity, we were given that person in our life, we had that chance, we didn't do that thing. If only we could come in, if only I could have what they have when they had it on their timing. And what we declare before God often is we ignore the blessings of God and instead what we say to God is, God, you made a mistake. You've been Stingy. We live our lives thinking if my whole life would be better if that thing didn't happen to me. My whole life would be better if I had married that person and not this person. My whole life would be better if I was married. My whole life would be better if I was single. My whole life would be better if I had gotten a better grade on that test, which led to that college, which led to that career, which led to that amount of money, which led to that house, and then I'd have it all and everything would be great. God, why have you been so ungenerous to me? One of the great weapons that you have against temptation is in your life is gratitude. It's choosing to be the kind of person who stands in the face of all the things in your life that you maybe wish were different and chooses to see God's abundant provision where the devil wants you to only see his lack of generosity. But if you don't get that, If you miss that, you will succumb to temptation. Well, what is it that the devil does? The devil, the, the snake, gets Eve to question the word of God. Why is it that Jesus shows up and is constantly talking about how the word of God is more trustworthy? It's more reliable. That it is, it is, it, it's, uh, it's food for the soul. Why is it that Jesus is always saying that it's not good for man to live on bread alone? But what is to man live on? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why is it that Paul would command that when we are are battling against the devil that we need to put on the whole armor of God and that includes really knowing what God has said. Why do we do that? Because one of the ways in which the devil seeks to undo who we are is by getting us to question the goodness and the word of God. And it gets her. What happens to Eve? Eve? Look in in verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, she repeats back. Does she repeat back what was told to Adam? No. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She doesn't say Yahweh. She also says Elohim, inviting the, 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 the in Hebrew, the, in the poetry, right, renders that she is moving towards the, the, the serpent. And here she does a couple things. One, she begins to question if God is reasonable. Do, do you notice that she doesn't say the word every? She does not, when repeating back to the serpent in verse 3, she does not say, no, 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 no. no. God said we can eat from every, not that one, but every. She doesn't. Instead, she says, we shouldn't eat from this one, and we shouldn't touch it, or else we die. Now, that's nowhere found earlier in Genesis. This is an addition that Eve has added on. God has never said, no, you can't even touch the tree. But that's, sometimes what happens with temptation is that we, when we fail to understand what God has actually said, we can make a mistake of subtracting from God's law and we can make a mistake by adding to it. I'm sure you have met some Christians with a Bible in their hand who seek to use that Bible to get you to do things that that Bible doesn't say. We love adding to God's law. Or subtracting from it, which is why it's so important for us to read it rightly and handle it rightly. And how does the serpent respond in verse 4? The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent calls God a liar. And then what does the serpent do? Verse 5 for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Pay attention to that. Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. The serpent tells Eve, God made you in his image, but he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't know, he doesn't ha- he doesn't know what's good for you. He's keeping the best from you. So, don't you see that, Eve? Do you notice this? The serpent never tells her to eat from the tree. It's unbelievable. Not once did the serpent say, You should explicitly do what God said not to do. That's not how the devil gets us. The devil rarely gets us. Temptation rarely gets us by coming at us and saying, God said, Don't steal. But you know what? You should steal. That's going to be great. That's not what happens. Instead, what happens? We have some sort of justification. Well, I know I'm not supposed to steal, but surely God wants me to have that thing. And so, you know, this one time it's fine. I'm not stealing it, I deserve it. I worked hard for it, it's practically mine already. It's in the cart. We justify our sin because we somehow conclude that God doesn't have what's best for us. And so the serpent says, he made you in his image, but he made you blind. Your eyes are closed and what you need is for them to be open because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what's good and evil. He doesn't want you to decide what's good and what's evil. He does that. He he doesn't want you to do that. The serpent never tells her to eat, only to question the goodness of God. The deception is not, don't eat. It's, is God really good? He's holding out on you. And so what happens in verse 6 as we move to rebellion? Verse 6. The text says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, like every other tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, like every other tree was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's unique about this tree. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband. Where was her husband? With her. If you've been paying attention to this series all along, as a man especially, I mean just what a failure. Like, you were with her? You had a responsibility to protect her, to care for her, to walk alongside her, to remind her of God's word, and you're just sitting around your hands in your pockets? Nope, he doesn't have pockets yet. won't have that for future. Just sitting around with your hands at your side? Next to, what are you doing? What, what should he have done? What is Adam supposed to do? He should have stopped his wife. He should have stopped Eve. He should have said, Eve, don't do it. It's not worth it. God told us not to. He made everything. He made it all good. He made us. He made me. He breathed life into me. He made you from my rib. Remember that? He brought us together into this relationship, into this marriage. He's going to bless us into the future with children. He's given us trees to eat and work to do. He let us name animals. He's, He's given us everything. Don't do it. But instead, what happens? He does nothing. He, he doesn't say to her, Eve, we shouldn't. God made us in his image. We shouldn't try to be like him. We already bear his image, and that's enough. We should trust in his goodness. He should have stepped on the snake and ended it. But he didn't. Instead, what does he do? He eats. He eats. And, and, and this decision that they have made upends everything. Everything we've read so far. Um, I love this. this is, I just love this. If you read Genesis um, 1 all the way through 3, you see that it, it starts with God, and then God creates, um, God creates man, and man over woman, and then the two of them over creation. That's sort of the order. And here in Genesis 3, what happens? Creation, namely the creature, the serpent, subverts woman who who subverts man, which will break their relationship with God. Like everything was ordered in a way. And what is chaos? Chaos is a complete upending of God's created order and that's that's what the devil seeks to do to take what god has made good and created good and ordered rightly and to reverse it and to upend it and because of that chaos because of this moment everything is about to change verse 7 the eyes of both of them were open and they were new they knew they were naked And so what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. There's like this immediate change. First, their eyes are opened. Did the devil say that their eyes would be opened? Yes or no? Yes, the devil said that your eyes will be opened. He said, God, if you eat this, your eyes will be opened. I just want you to see this. This is important. The devil says your eyes will be opened, and when your eyes will be opened, it'll be great. Are their eyes opened? Is it great? No. The devil's not telling a whole truth. The devil is telling a half truth. And a half truth, this is not my quote, this is from J.I. Packer. A half truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. When you take, oh, we tell only half the story. What does the devil do? The devil says, Your eyes will be open. It'll be good. Their eyes were opened. It was not good. Because rather than their, their, their eyes being opened and them becoming what they thought they might become by way of disobedience, instead what happens is they see their own shame. Sin always, always over-promises and underdelivers. It'll taste good. It'll feel good. It'll be worth it. All of these function as kind of half-truths. Will it taste good? Well, it might taste good. Will it feel good? Well, it might feel good. Will it be worth it? Well, maybe in that moment. But that moment of pleasure will become a lifetime of pain. That taste will become an addiction. That secret that happened in silence, apart from everyone else knowing, will end up rotting you to your core creating distance from you and God. Your sin promises you the whole world and it'll give it to you. It'll just cost you your soul in the process. Adam and Eve know that they're naked, so they cover up. You can see the sense of urgency. We messed up. Their innocence is gone and shame for the first time. They have now experienced it. Why? Because they bought the lie that the sin would be worth it. I just wish, I wish that each one of us, and I pray this for myself. I've, um, I think I've said this recently. Uh, people come to me. I, I said this at our worship night. I've said, when people ask me how can they pray for me, one of the things I've been saying recently is, pray that I would hate my sin. Because my worry is that um, if I'm not careful, my sin will go from something I hate to something I consider, from something I consider to something that I practice, from practice to something that I may delight in, and that I may justify, all the while forgetting and not seeing the ways that it is corrupting my heart and creating distance between me and the only one who has ever loved me unconditionally. And that's exactly what happens in verse eight as we get to confrontation. They cover up, verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what do they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They are now hiding from God. Their sin has created separation. They are now hiding from God. Communion with God The God of life is now broken and they've become now spiritually dead because rather than God being the source of life, they've decided they're going to do what they think is best. And verse nine comes and I just, verse nine hits you just like a rock. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God knows where they are. They're naked. They're ashamed. They're covered. They're hiding. God knows where they are. He's not asking them this question because he doesn't know where they are. He's asking them this question because he wants them to realize that they are hiding from the source of life. That they are running from love incarnate. That they've turned on the God who made them, who provided for them. God asks, Where are you? Because God is gracious, and while they might be running from Him, He is still looking for them. Because God seeks the lost. One of the greatest lies I was told growing up in the church, I got this impression. I don't think anyone actually even said this, but I had this impression, which was this is how my relationship with God goes. It's like this I sin, I run from God then it's my job to, like, get my act together so that I could humbly approach God and say sorry. And what I wish I had known when I was younger, and I hope you don't leave misunderstanding, is that when you sin and run from God, God pursues you. He looks for you. Some of you in this morning right now, you've run from God for a long time. He is after you, asking you the question, where are you? He seeks the lost. And then in verse 10, you get Adam's response. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice God is specifically calling out to Adam because he has responsibility that he's failed at here. And what does Adam say? Adam says, hey, I was afraid because I was naked. And God says in verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Inviting Adam to confess his guilt. And what does Adam do in verse 12? He says, the woman gave it to me. Not just the woman. What does he say? The woman whom you gave to be with me. It's her fault. And you know what? It's kind of yours too. That woman, who I was like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she's woman, she's with me, she's by my side, at the end of Genesis 2. Now he's like, You gave her to me. Instant blaming. He blames Eve instantly. And here you get the first marriage fight in the Bible. And the source of every marriage fight in the Bible, which is what? It's your fault. Every time I do a wedding ceremony, I want to remind both people getting married that they are both more sinful than they could imagine, and that the person they're marrying is also going to be sinful, and that if they want to have a healthy marriage, they must always treat their own sin as the biggest problem in their marriage. Marriages begin to crumble and end as soon as one of you starts saying, you know what the real problem is here? You. Oh, me? No, 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 I think it's you. And we're off and running. Sin wrecks our relationship with God. He blames Eve. It also wrecks our relationship with one another. And verse 13, then God turns to Eve and says, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What does she do? She blames she points the finger. This is not my responsibility. This was not my job. I, I, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. In just 13 verses, we've got All this potential, all this beauty, all of this wonder, and then in 13 verses, we get shame, we get guilt, we get blame shifting, we get defensiveness, we get a lack of responsibility and ownership, we get hiding from God, etc., 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 and the world begins to unravel. What was once full of peace and potential is now a mess. Because these two people in the very beginning thought, you know what? I see God's command and I see God's goodness, but I have a better idea. And the thing that they did in the garden, you and I still do every day. God, I see all you've done. You've given me every breath. You've given me life. You've given me today. I, I, I can't begin to count the number of things you've given me, and yet My wicked, corrupt heart is obsessed over what you haven't given me. And if you just gave me the thing I wanted, oh, it would be so much better. You're not a very good God. I would be much better than you. Sin, I hope you see this, shatters our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves. Did you see that? All of a sudden, they lost their innocence, they feel ashamed, they cover up, they have a broken relationship with themselves. It shatters our relationship with others, and it shatters relationship with creation. Sin is not just rejecting God's way. That's how we often think about sin. We think of it as disobedience. God said, don't do this, and then we do it. That's that's sin. Of course, that is sin. Sin is also denying that God's way of doing things is best. Sin is also declaring that there's something more important to me than God, some other source of life. When you talk to young people today, most of them will concede the point that like, yeah, we shouldn't steal. Yeah, we shouldn't commit murder. Those things are bad. But young people today often Miss an understanding of sin because they only see it as breaking rules and they fail to sometimes see it as the God who is life and light and love who made you for relationship with Himself, rather than you giving Him the honor that He deserves, you live as though this other thing is going to ultimately satisfy you. And if I just had that, then all would be well. Sin is making some other thing in our life more important. So when we lie, why do we lie? We lie for approval. We lie because we we want to be liked by others. Why do we cheat? We cheat because we think we need need money. Why do we need money? So that we can provide for ourselves. Because if we have enough money, then we'll be okay. This this man-centered, I'll do it my way, right? Like that old Sinatra song, just horrible, my way is what's wrong with the world. And that, and that it all begins when we start to question the goodness of God. Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian and preacher, tells a story of a kid who goes to a, a toy shop with his father. It's Christmas time, and the father brings his young son into the Christmas shop, and it's just like, a wonderful old school Christmas shop. Remember those old Christmas shops that were like just filled with wonder and puzzles and amazement and toys and trinkets. It's buzzing. And the father brings his son at Christmas time and says to his son, Son, what do you think of all this? And the son just looks and goes, this is amazing. And then the father says, see that over there? And he looks at some sort of flying cool spaceship and the son says, that's amazing. And the, and the dad goes, would you like that? And the son goes, oh, man, that would be great. And then the, the father says, oh, look at this. And it's this really cool puzzle with all these complex pieces. And it's sort of like 3D and it builds up. And, and the, the, the dad says, son, what do you think about this? And son's like, that's amazing. And the dad says, would you like that? And he goes, oh, I would love that. And the father says, look at this. Look at this cool yo-yo. It like goes down and then it spins forever. Do you want that? And the son's like, oh, I would love that. And the father takes the son aside and pulls him and sits down on one knee and says, son, take a good look, because I'm not giving you any of this. And takes him out of the door. And Ferguson says that that's how the devil wants you to think about God. The devil wants you to think that God says to you, see all that? Isn't that amazing? You get none of it to question God's very goodness. Because then one of two things happens when you see God like that. First, you'll rebel against God because you're like, that's wicked. I have no interest in that. Why would I have interest in a God who wants to only withhold good things from me? Or you'll make this other mistake, which is like, you know what? I can get him to give me good things. I just got to behave well enough. And both of those are fundamentally lies. You and I, Need to recognize that the first temptation we will face is to question the goodness of God. So rebel against that temptation by declaring all of the ways that God has been kind to you. And recognize that when you fail, and you will fail, and I fail, and we fail all the time, recognize that God seeks us when we are hiding from Him. For all have sinned in Adam. This act is so simple, its undoing is so complex. And so devastating. If you don't understand sin, you'll never really understand grace. And so let me end by just kind of saying this. I love this. In Genesis chapter 3, we discover in verse 6 that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. She took And she ate. Take and eat. And when she does, everything falls apart. Jesus, on the night that he will be betrayed, will stand before his disciples and he will also say these words Take and eat. When take and eat was said in Genesis, it was the destruction of everything. But the take and eat of Matthew 26 is the redemption that we desperately need most. God is going to fix the world through his son, the sacrifice offered to us. At this table, we will meet him as we take and eat. So this morning, if you are broken, if you are weary, if you are tired, if you are running from God, I want you to know that God is seeking you. I want you to know this morning that God is offering you forgiveness. He's offering you hope. He's offering you healing. He's offering you peace. He's offering you himself. And the only way to be right with God is by repenting and turning from our sins, confessing and trusting in Jesus, receiving him by faith, Every week we get together and we proclaim that we need the gospel for everyone in here has sinned and all of us need the Lord. And I don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning, but I want you to know that this morning he offers himself to you. See your sin with clarity. Turn from it, recognizing that it never satisfies the way it promises to. And then see Jesus on the cross. See him dying to pay the penalty for your sin. See him buried on that day. See him raised up the third day. See him with arms open wide declaring to you and to me that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're at in position to him, he says, come to me. He is pursuing you this morning and he offers himself to you. Will you receive him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you protect us from the devil. Protect us from the ways in which our minds so quickly start to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. The ways in which our thoughts are so quickly shifting from your provision, your abundance, your blessing, your goodness, the ways that you've saved us and rescued us and redeemed us and promised us and given us your spirit. Lord, you've given us more than more blessings than we can count. And yet so many of us live each day believing that you've, met, you've made a mistake and that you're holding out from us. You've given us all kinds of good gifts and, and, and you've given us none greater than yourself. Because you've promised that once we come to you, we are united to you and we will remain united to you forever. If we have you, we have all that we truly need. And yet we walk around as though you are not enough. So Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have, with our lives and our attitudes, declared you're not enough. And help us to be honest before you this morning. Help us to see Jesus this morning, his generosity, his salvation, and his goodness. Help us to see that you are the kind of Father who gives good gifts, and there's no gift you've ever given better than just yourself. So this morning, I pray that you would change our wicked hearts, that you would would change them from being bent towards sin to being bent towards you and the things of you. Forgive us in the deepest places where we need forgiveness. Be our satisfaction, because you are what most satisfies. It's in your name we pray. Amen.